You know, this is a passage um, that is uh, spoken of in the Gospel of Mark and also in Matthew and Luke. Matthew gives a whole lot more, Matthew 16, and we've preached that passage. And one of the challenges I was telling uh, Stephen and some of the others this week in preparation is, is when you approach a passage that, that the, the, the synoptic Gospels, or the other Gospels, uh, give information about, do you, do you preach everything? You try to like pull all three of them together and give the, 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 the big picture, the, how, it, how the, it, it all, each one gives a different, different point of view or pieces of information. Do you bring it all together or do you just stick with with the, the gospel writer before you because Mark has a specific purpose in the way that, that he where he puts it in his story and how much he reveals and how much he doesn't how much he doesn't reveal. And um, we're gonna stick with Mark because uh, it I think you'll see how it all fits together. It, it's a very succinct uh, and um, and breathtaking view of of this confession the great confession that Jesus is the Messiah. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. You probably would recognize this passage. I'd say it's probably the one, most, one of the most recognized passages in the Bible, and rightly so. You, you've probably heard these two questions that are echoed here, presented in many sermons. Maybe someone has asked that question to you. It's, a, it's the passage where Jesus gives the disciples... The, uh, uh, the quiz of a lifetime. It, it's, and it's pass fail. It, the result will determine their eternal destiny, and there's only two questions on it. I, I don't know about you, but whenever I open up a test or a quiz, whenever I was in college or seminary, and you'd see a hundred questions, you would think, oh man, a hundred questions. But, but then when you go back and, and you get the grade, you realize that you can miss a lot of them. So the fewer the questions, yeah, the, the less you have to have to answer, but but the higher the the uh, um, <laughs> the cost. The two questions are: Who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And he brings a question before them. He refuses to allow them to to skate around it in the in the scene. And you're going to see how he he brings them to this place and brings them to this question. And they have to answer it, just like you have to answer it for yourself. And the disciples get the answer right, as Stephen, as Stephen sang, but they struggle with the implications of what that answer means. This is the moment when the disciples settle the matter in the Gospel of Mark concerning the person of Jesus. But they struggle greatly with the plan of, of Jesus. It, it, it's hard to underestimate verses 27 through verse 33 in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, it is a hinge. And so everything in the first part of the Gospel of Mark leads up to the, the exit in, in Galilee. And then here is the pinnacle, the, the question and the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And then immediately the, the, the cost, the plan, the, the cross. Everything in Mark moves to this point, and everything from this point flows out of it. Jesus is, from this point, is moving towards Jerusalem. He even changes, or he, he even emphasizes something different in, in his preaching. In Galilee, it's, it's, he's, he's saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, 
And from this point forward, it's all about the cross. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. So as soon as the disciples confess his messianic identity explicitly, I mean, they said, who could this be? This must be God. But they've never confessed the way that they have in, in this passage up, up until this moment. But the minute that his identity is explicitly acknowledged, Jesus tells them explicitly about the messianic mission. And that mission is that he's going to the cross. The confession of the identity of Jesus leads to the revealing of the mission of Jesus. The Christ leads to the cross. You can't have one without the other. And at this point, the Galilean ministry is over. We saw how Jesus says no more signs, no more preaching. There's been hundreds of miracles, hundreds of healings and signs and of divine power. And finally, there is no question in the disciples' mind about the person of Jesus. But what Jesus says next, after those two questions and their answer, is hard for them to believe. Shocking. So shocking that Peter, on behalf of the disciples, pulls the Son of God aside and rebukes him. That's how shocking the message of Jesus is is to them. And this is like the one commentator says like the highest emotional roller coaster ride that you can ever think of. There's the greatest realization that Jesus is the Christ, followed by the greatest devastation. He will suffer many things and be killed. I mean, all in in this in this passage. They just don't understand how that could be. How could the one who was the promised one, the, the one who was the promised to Adam and promised to Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the one the entire Old Testament spoke about, the one that, that the entire Old Testament pointed toward, all the law and the prophets point to the coming of the Messiah. He would be the one who would come. Even John the Baptist would say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is here. There He is. He is Jesus. How could the one, that one, have come... And now, he's going to die. He's going to be killed. How could that take place? That, that, that just, they cannot get their minds around those two, those two realities. The Christ and the cross explicitly set before the disciples. And both of those are explicitly set before the disciples, the Messiah and his mission, because that is the doorway into the kingdom. Without the mission of the Messiah, there is no Messiah. That's what the word means. Messiah is the anointed one, the one that's specifically empowered by God to come and accomplish a specific task. And that specific task, he's sent for this purpose, right? And what Jesus said, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came for that purpose. He is the doorway of the kingdom, but it is the cross that opens the door to the kingdom. And Christ must tread through that first, but then everyone else has to follow. And from this moment, the fact that Jesus is the Christ and he's headed to the cross falls over all of their journey all the way up until Jerusalem. And what the disciples struggle with here, what they confess and then what they struggle with, in, in, the, in the person of Christ is confessed, but they struggle with the plan, that continues all the way up until after the resurrection. They do not get the, the fullness of what Jesus... They do not fully accept 
until after Jesus raises from the dead and he is literally in their presence. But they finally do get it. You can go read the book of Acts and the preaching of Peter at Pentecost because that's the first thing that, that he talks about. I mean, if you look at verse 27 through the end of chapter 8, you, you have this Jesus coming from, to Caesarea Philippi, the, asking the disciples the two questions, them saying, you're the Christ, him immediately in verse 31, teaching them about the Son of Man having to suffer, this scene about Peter rebuking him, Jesus rebuking Peter, and then Jesus teaches in verse 34, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. And it's all of this is, is the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish, and how we respond to it, what it demands of us. It's, it's all packed in verse 27 through the end of the, of the chapter. There's the great confession that must be accompanied by the great mission and that's going to bring about a great submission. You're going to take up your own cross. And we're going to see that, that next time. MacArthur said this is the greatest good news, bad news moment in history. You are the Christ. And I'm going to die. So let's listen and see how God shows us all of this in, in His Word. The great confession of the disciples leads to the great mission of Christ, and that brings the great submission. We're only going to cover the first two this morning, but here's how I would outline it. We call it the gospel's foundation revealed because this is the moment in which the disciples confess something, but then Jesus reveals. And we call it the gospel's foundation because of Matthew 16. Jesus says to Peter, when Peter makes this confession on behalf of the disciples, upon this rock, upon this confession, upon this truth that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. It's the foundation. The gospel is, is, our, is our foundation. And so you find in verses 27 through 30, the disciples' confession. That's about the person of Christ. And then in verse 31 through 33, you see the plan or the, the divine Mission, the person of Christ, the plan of Christ, the disciples' confession, the divine mission. Let's look at the first one here is the disciples' confession in verse 27. Look at verse 27, if you will. There is a question, there's a profession that they make, and then there's a restriction that Jesus gives. Verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he questioned his disciples. Now, if you were here last time, you, you, you know that you understand the flow in verse, in verse 26. Jesus heals this, this blind man. He's on the outskirts of Bethsaida. He takes the blind man aside. There's going to be no more public miracles. So he takes him out privately and, and, and he performs the miracle. You see the compassion of God and you see the judgment there. There's no more public signs, but God's not going to leave this man in, in, the, in the condition. So he takes him to the outskirts, he heals the blind man, and then he sends him directly home. He says, don't go back into the village. And the reason was, was so Jesus and the disciples could slip away unnoticed. And verse 27 tells us where they, where they went. They go to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles north in the district of Idaria. It's the, the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Now, there's a capital city there, 
which is where uh, uh, Herod Philip's residence was. And that was the capital, but then there were these towns around. It's like a, it's like a vicinity, and then there's the, there's the capital. What's significant about the city is it's built at the foothills of, of Mount Hermon. And, and, and out of the ground, we, we've been there, we've, we've seen it, we've talked about this before, out of the ground there's an underground river. And so all the melting and what happens on, on Mount Hermon, all that snow, somehow makes its way underground. And right at the base, right at the, the center of this city, the water comes up out of the ground. It's one of the tributaries of the Jordan River. And I don't mean just like a spring. I mean, we had springs all over the mountains in West Virginia, and some people would take a, would take a pole and stick it in the, in the hillside, and people would go and fill up their water jugs. I'm not talking about a place to fill up a water jug. I'm talking about... Uh, an area the size of, of, of half of this ministry center. I mean, if you took the two, the two center sections, I mean, that's how big the river is coming out of the, out of this, out of this mountain. It's massive. And in an area where it's agricultural and there's dry seasons, anywhere there's water, it's a, it's extremely important for, for animals and also for crops. And having water coming up out of the ground and not being able to explain that, subterranean, and they don't have the ability to see. This was mind blowing. This is a this is a significant place, and the superstition of the pagans took over. And so, long before it was Caesarea Philippi, this was believed to be the birthplace of of Pan. Now, you ever heard of a Pan flute, a little flute? And you know what? Pan is the the little Greek god that's that's with a little G, obviously half goat and half. Half man. He plays a flute. This is supposedly his birthplace. And they, the pagans, built a temple there. You saw some of those pictures before we even started this morning. And they would sacrifice at this place. Herod the Great comes and he builds a temple to Pan and at the opening of the mountain and then another temple to Caesarea, uh, Caesar Augustus. And then when Philip takes over, he renames the place Caesarea Philippi and builds a Builds a, a city there. Now, if you go look on the map, you, you probably won't find Panius. You'll find Banius. And that's because people in that area had a hard time pronouncing their P's. They couldn't say P, so they would say B. So it became Banius. Kind of like we do when we, we call it Armageddon, right? There's going to be the Battle of Armageddon. In Hebrew, that's Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo. We don't say Har Megiddon. We say Ar Megiddon. It's a, we don't use the H. And the point that Mark is making here about the village of Caesarea and all of that is this is a very Roman city. It's a very big city. And it's one that has a long and extensive influence of pagan gods. And Jesus purposely takes his disciples 25 miles from Galilee... And he asked them these questions. There is no preaching. There is no miracle. This is not a mission. This is not a short-term mission in order to win the people of Caesarea Philippi. This is specifically for the disciples. This is a field trip. And there is, just like the, the blind man was a massive object lesson, there is a massive backdrop here that Jesus wants the disciples to be around when he poses this question. Who do men say that I am? Look at all these people worshiping everything. Who do men say that I am? Who do they say that, that, that I am? When, when we were in Galilee, and then who do you say that I am? This is the place of the great confession. It's also where the transfiguration is going to happen. It's going to 
happen somewhere in that area. The disciples are not in Kansas anymore, is what I'm trying to say. They're not in the fishing villages or rolling meadows of Galilee, where there was Roman presence, but primarily Jewish influence. This is Caesarea Philippi, the presence of Roman dominance in the shadow of false gods, the worship of false gods, and he places these questions before them. It is also very, very close to where the headquarters of the tribe of Dan was, where the first counterfeit altar was set up in place of Jerusalem. And Jesus takes them there and asks them two questions. Look at verse 27. He questioned his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Literally, the people. Who do men say that I am? It's literally the people. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, now, people have answered this question. The people have answered this question. I mean, all the miracles in Galilee provoke the question, who is this man? The disciples said, who could this be whenever he, when he calmed the storm? And people had drawn the conclusions. I mean, it, it, it's not like that Jesus is trying to figure out the answer here. He's asking a question to the disciples for them to repeat back to him what he already knows. The Galileans... Thought he was a miracle worker. They gathered any time he was in town. Heal me. Feed me. His family had determined he was a madman. You remember they come to Capernaum to try to take him back to Nazareth? The Pharisees and the scribes that come up from Jerusalem say he's a, he's a demon-fueled heretic. That's what they declared. And other people were more positive. Some said he had to be a prophet. Elijah, who had come to prepare for the disciples, the, the Messiah. Look at what Peter says. Verse 28. And they told him, the whole disciples, the whole group is answering at this point. They told him, saying John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but, but others one of the, one of the prophets. Um, John the Baptist. Remember that's what Herod said. Herod said that John the Baptist, Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead because his conscience bothered him so bad. Others say Elijah. Elijah was, remember, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven. And so Malachi says that before the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom, that Elijah is going to return. So that's what they said. And some say he's just a prophet. God promised in Deuteronomy to send prophets. And Jesus must be one of those, of those prophets. But then Jesus asks the disciples... The real question, the question that the first one sets up. In verse 29, and he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And that's right to emphasize that. Most of the time when somebody reads it, you'll hear him emphasize, who do you say that I am? It's right to emphasize that. That's not just a preacher trying to press that on your, your conscience, although that would be important. It, it is written that way. In the Greek, the you is separated from the verb and it's placed at the beginning of the sentence to make it emphatic. It's like saying, you whom I have chosen and trained in contrast to the people, who do you say that I am? What is my true identity? That's what Jesus is asking. Do you think Jesus already knows the answer to this? Yeah, he does. He's asking them to confess it. He's bringing them to the point of of confession. And there was a moment in your life before you came to Christ where you had thoughts and you had ideas and you may have believed in your heart, but then there was a moment where you confessed with your mouth publicly before men 
that Jesus is the Christ, right? Now, there was tension up back from verse 21 up to this moment. You remember verse 21? Look at verse 21. Jesus said, do you not yet understand? I mean, can you imagine God saying that to you? I mean, do you, you have ears and you don't hear? You have eyes and you don't see? How long have I been with you? Do you not yet understand the tension that, that begins there in verse 21? Comes to a climax in this, in this question. Who am I? What is your answer? And now it's released. Verse 29. Peter answered for the entire group and he said to him, You are the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is confessed. Peter answers for the group. And he answers for the group as the rulers of the city declared Caesar is Lord. And the superstitious people in the city worship false gods and offer sacrifices to them. In this place, Jesus is confessed by the disciples as Lord. He is the Christ. He is the one to be worshipped because he's going to make a, a sacrifice a single perfect sacrifice on the cross, and he's going to make atonement. And in a few verses, he's going to be revealed in his transfigured glory. I mean, this this jaunt to Caesarea Philippi and what happens here is, is so important in the Gospels. The veil of his humanity is going to be lifted, and Jesus' body will present itself in the form of the glory of God, just as it will in the day in which He reigns. He is the Christ. The Christ has a mission. He's going to go to the cross. And then after the cross, He is going to return to the Father and be glorified. And that's what they're going to see in the transfiguration. That's what's happening in Caesarea Philippi. That's why He brought Him here, and that's what is going on. And it's a, it's a massive moment. It's the first time that a human being makes the statement, makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ. The Father says it in the baptism. Mark says it from the very first verse. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No human being, no disciple has confessed that up till this point. Demons have said it. And now the disciples are confessing it for the first time. But, but it's also sad. Because Jesus asks two questions, doesn't he? And they're two different answers. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you, my followers, say that I am? And they get it right, and the people got it wrong, didn't they? And I think what's often missed that's, that's kind of a system running in the background is, is, is the scene the Roman inhabitants who are, who are clueless to the fact that God is in their midst and the fact that they just left the Jewish people who confess that He's only a prophet. There are those who consider the words of Jesus and all the claims to His deity and they answer the question wrongly. You can answer these questions, this question right and you can answer it wrong. It's not a middle ground. I understand that we live in a society that, that wants to have, have it not just two ways, but a hundred different ways. They, they don't want you to be particular. They don't want you to be exclusive. They don't want you to be distinct. They're fine with you being a Christian, just as long as that doesn't mean that that's the only way to heaven. 
They're fine with Jesus being a prophet or a teacher as long as he's not declared to be God. And yet, that's exactly what the Bible says. And if you're a Christian, that's what you've confessed. And if you don't confess that, you're not a Christian. Period. I mean, I'm not trying to be ugly. I am telling you exactly what the Word of God says. They say he is good, but not God. They conclude he is someone other than God himself. And that is the difference between heaven and hell. That's the difference between religion and salvation. And that's what divides the world today. Who is Jesus Christ? And that's what divides you today. What you do with him. And that's what God's going to use to divide all humanity on the last day. You can go to plenty of places, but Matthew 13, 49 talks about the great dragnet that God's bringing through through all of time. And the dragnet is not like the round fishing net that you throw out there and you pull it and, and one person gathers up like, like with Peter. A dragnet is stretched between one boat to another. And it, I mean, it's, it, it, it's hundreds of yards long, some of them. And the boat has an anchor point and it, it sweeps all through the sea. And the point is it drags it up onto the shore. And once it's drug up onto the shore, then whatever it catches, it catches everything. It goes to the bottom and it drags everything with it. That's why it's called a dragnet. And then once it's on shore, at that point, it, the, the fish are separated from all of the garbage that's there. In Matthew, Jesus uses that as a, as a picture of what's happening through, throughout time. There's a, a God's great dragnet is being is being brought from from Adam until Christ returns in the last day and and when the net is is full it, God's going to pull it on the shore and it says then they sat down and sorted the good fish into containers and threw the bad away so it will be in the end of the age the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. The separation point, what is good and what is bad, has nothing to do with your works. It has to do with whether you know Christ or not. Matthew twenty five thirty two. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 1 John two twenty three. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Luke 12, 8. I say to you, every one who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess before the angels of, of God. The invitation is open. The question is asked. But how you answer the question determines where you land on that continuum. Which group are you in? Are you in the one that would confess that Jesus is the Christ? He's Savior. He's Lord. He's God. Well, before you answer that question, you need to hear the rest of the passage. Look at verse 27. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. And Peter recognized that Jesus was the, the one appointed by God, but he didn't understand what else that meant. And you must. It's not just about the person of Christ, it's, it's also the mission that he accomplished. 
the Bible says he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Lord is his title. Christ describes his work. He's the one sent by God to accomplish a specific work. And Peter confesses his description. But he doesn't grasp what that work is. That's why Jesus warns Peter and the rest of the disciples to tell no man. Look at verse 30. I I mean, does this just not go, what? I mean, you scratch your head. I mean, it builds to this crescendo. Who do men say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the whole group. You are the Christ. Matthew says the Son of the living God. And Jesus warned them to tell no man about it. It's just, it just doesn't seem to go together unless you understand, unless you see what comes next. He tells them to, warns them to tell no man because Peter and the disciples only got the person, but they didn't get the plan. And the plan without the person is insufficient. It's not the full message that Jesus is the Christ. His person is not the full message. What's coming next is the full message. Yes, he is the Messiah, but but that alone is not the message. The, The Messiah has come to lay down his life as a sacrifice and raise from the dead. That's the message. And there are many who will want to take half the message and embrace Jesus as the earthly king, but not a substitutionary sacrifice. There are many people that will gladly take Jesus as a need meter, as a prayer answer, as their get-out-of-hell-free card, but they refuse to take all of Him. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus tells His disciples, You embrace all of Him, or you don't get any of Him. And that's what He explains next. The divine mission. There's a mission that's described. There's this misunderstanding of a deceived disciple. And then there's this correction. As soon as they acknowledge he's the Messiah, he lays on them the mission. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. He began to teach the Son of Man. He switches from Christ to the Son of Man. He's not correcting them. He's just using another title that that emphasizes the passion part of his mission. He says he must suffer many things, and he describes what those many things are. He defines them. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And it's the scribes and the leaders of Israel that, that they're going to do those things. It's not the Romans. It's God's own leaders that are going to do those things. But after three days, he's going to rise again. He'll suffer, but he'll succeed. He'll accomplish the task. The mission was to suffer, to die, to raise. He is the Davidic Messiah. He would reign. He will reign, but he also is the suffering servant of Isaiah. And the cross is explicitly set before the disciples as the doorway into the kingdom. Verse 32 is really interesting. Because it says he was stating the matter plainly. In verse 31, it says he began to teach them. And tells us 
what he teaches them. And then in verse 32, it says, he was stating the matter plainly. He was, he was communicating the, the saying and, and the word that's used here is not the word that, that you would typically find for just teaching. It's not to teach. It's, it's the word for, for logos, which is in John chapter 1. Jesus is stating the word with, with clarity. He's preaching the full gospel message. The wisdom of God is communicated to them plainly. And the wisdom of God is that Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ would die and would suffer, be rejected by Israel, and would raise from the dead on the, on the third day. And the tension that was relieved is, is now just returned in a massive way. How do we know? Well, look at verse 32. He was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and, and, and began to, to rebuke him. Now, I understand when you read that, you can get the fact that, that Peter shouldn't have done that. I mean, I know you know that. But what's really stated here is Peter takes the Lord by the arm and, and says, come over here with me. It's like taking a misguided person aside from the from public so that they don't further embarrass themselves. That's the idea. I need to give you a better understanding of this whole messianic responsibility. That's what Jesus is what Peter is doing to Jesus. And and if that wasn't bad enough, it, it says he, he began to rebuke him. So I mean get this picture. He takes him to Caesarea Philippi. They ask the questions. They give the right answer. Jesus then begins to teach them. He begins to make it very plain that this is the wisdom of God. This is what God has intended from the beginning. And Peter pulls him aside. As a misguided person. It's not that Peter is... Um, misunderstands. He understands exactly what Jesus is saying because he rebukes him. The word rebuke is the, is the same word that's used in verse 30 where he warned them to tell no one. He rebuked them to tell no one. Now Peter is rebuking the Lord and it's the same word that Jesus is going to use when he rebukes Peter in the very next, next verse. Matthew and Luke record Peter's words. God forbid this isn't going to happen to you. It's like, come here, I need to talk to you. What you're saying is, is not the way that it's going to happen. I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah, I can, because I've done it to the Lord before in prayer. Peter wasn't having trouble understanding what Jesus was saying. He was unwilling to accept it. I mean, it is, it's so different from what he expected. Jesus is not the dominating king. He's not ushering in the kingdom like like they had been taught all of their lives that would happen when the Messiah would come. He only had a small number of followers. The people were rejecting him. The religious leaders were condemning him. And, and they still had hopes that something would change. And now Jesus says that's not going to change. It's going to get worse. He tells them the real mission, he'll be killed. That's God's plan. But it wasn't what man would plan. 
And Jesus won't be taken aside in private. He responds to the group. Look at verse 33. Here's the correction. Turning around and seeing his disciples... Peter pulls him away from the rest of the group, and Jesus turns, not speaking only to Peter, but for all the disciples to hear, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but but man. Same strong word. Jesus rebukes Peter because his death was necessary. The divine purpose of Jesus' ministry was not healing, was not overthrowing the Romans, it wasn't social justice. To fulfill the divine plan, he had to offer himself a ransom for many, as he will explain in Mark 10.45. Three times he's going to go back to this message for the disciples, and each time he unfolds it a little bit more, and it culminates in Mark 10.45. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. Literally, get out of my sight, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, Matthew says. Now, what is Jesus saying to Peter? Did did Satan literally jump inside of Peter's body at that point? Is Satan sitting on Peter's shoulder whispering something in his ear? No. He's not saying that Peter is demon-possessed at that moment. He explains what he means in the rest of the verse. Get behind me, Satan. Get out of my sight, Satan. And he addresses that to Peter. And he tells him why he says that. For you are setting your mind... You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but you're setting your mind on man's interests. Now, that's, that's got some big implications for you and I. Peter is acting like Satan. Satan's the god of this world. He's expressing the values of this fallen world. Peter's thinking is more in line with the fallen world and its author, who is Satan, than God. And so he is rebuked. I also want you to note, if you know the story from Matthew, that one minute Peter was acting on revelation from the Father, and the next minute it was from Satan. That doesn't mean that at that moment God is zapping Peter's mind or Satan's whispering in his ear. Our thoughts are a byproduct of the influences that we have. We think them, but they have seeds. And so Peter... Is hearing the gospel. He's brought up. He, he knows. He sees Jesus. He hears Peter preaching. He hears Jesus preach, preaching. Those thoughts are there, and God gives life to those thoughts, and he confesses, and he believes. And Satan, in this case, is the source of Peter's worldly thinking, which James calls earthly wisdom. Peter's operating system was devilish. It was anti-God. He's setting his mind that you can set your mind on the interest of men and not on the interest of God. Thoughts lead to actions, actions lead to habits, habits lead to lifestyles, and lifestyles prove whether you're going to heaven or hell. And so what you put in your mind matters. Your thoughts have seeds. And in the disciples' mind, there was no question about the person of Jesus, but they're not so sure about the plan. When you come to Christ, it's the same for you. 
there will come a moment when God will set before you the reality of life. Whether it's in a question or whether it's in a crisis. There may be a point in time where you're not sure specifically who Jesus is. You hear about Him like I did. I believed in God and Jesus and heaven and hell, but I didn't believe Him the way that the Bible presents Him, just as a concept. The Bible says that you have right and wrong written on your heart. You may see what He does in other people's lives. You may hear the claims of the Bible. You may draw insufficient conclusions. He, he's a good teacher. It's a... It's a good way to live, to love your neighbor. You could reject altogether. I'm not worried about that. I'll do that whenever I get older, like like me. But then there's a moment, if God is very gracious to you, where where it gets personal. It's not about other people. It's not about what the people say. It's about what what you say, what you believe. And, and at that moment, God confronts you with the question of who is Jesus Christ. Not others, but but you. What will you do with me? What is my identity? And whatever you conclude at that moment, a real confession involves embracing God's mission, which is that Jesus had to die in your place. And He rose from the dead. And that's going to lead to a complete submission of who you are. In verse 34, look at verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to him, If anyone wishes to follow me, come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Recognizing that Jesus is the way is only half the process. You have to confess him and submit to him as Lord. And in that confession, there comes death for you. It's the end of you. It's the beginning of Him. And you give up your rights and you receive His righteousness. And it's the beginning of a new life for you to follow Him daily. And that's what's happening in the disciples' lives at this moment. I think God wants to ask you, where you're at in that process. Why don't you bow your heads? You might be here this morning and you you know about the claims. You know what other people say. You may either even try to hide in the midst of, of your family or other people that are clearly Christians that have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but you personally have never answered that question to the core of your soul. And so I ask you, who who do you say that Christ is? And how you answer that question is just not a matter of whether you go to heaven. It's, it's a matter of how you live your life from this point forward. And it will involve suffering just like it involves suffering for Christ. But what it won't involve is hell. Because embracing Christ means that you get all of His inheritance. Maybe you're here this morning and today is the day in which you'd respond to the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning as a, as a believer and you have a burden for somebody who, who hasn't answered that question. 
Maybe you want the good and not the bad. Whatever it might be, you can come to the Lord this morning. Father, as we come to you, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for the clarity of your word. We give you thanks this morning, Father. We thank you that we understand we're on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. Father, I pray that you would help us to be thankful people. Father, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here that doesn't know the Lord, today would be the day that they would confess and believe, fully embrace the person and the plan of Jesus. Submit their hearts to Him. Trust fully in Him. That you'd be pleased to do that work. In Jesus' name. Amen.